All right, if you would, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Let me ask you uh, uh, to do us a favor. As we end the service and Jim was talking about that med advance table being available out there, can I ask you a favor just uh, to help us as a church? If you are a healthcare worker, but you say, you know what, I know I'm not going to be able to go to that particular conference, could you still stop by the, uh, the table and let them know, hey, I'm, here, I'm a, either a regular guest here at Emmaus or I'm a member at Emmaus and I work in the healthcare field? That way we can begin to build a database in-house of people who we know at Emmaus who work in that particular area. Or if you're a college student and you're studying medicine but you don't think you'll be able to go to the conference, if you could still stop by that table and let them know, hey, I'm involved in this area, I want you to be aware of it, that would be, that'd be a huge help to us. So even if you can't attend that conference or ensure, we would like to know those of us, uh, those who are in Emmaus who are involved in that. So just ask you, ask you to do that for us up front. Also, let me give you a little uh, preview of what's gonna happen at the end of the service before we actually, before we actually get there so we'll be aware. Uh, as we're talking about healing and forgiveness and God's work in our lives this morning, when we get to the end of the service, I'm going to pray through several examples of what it looks like to pray for those in our lives who are, who are sick and who are suffering. And so when that happens, uh, David's going to come up here and he's going to play in the background. Most of that time, I'm going to pray with my eyes open. Um, we're just declaring these things to the Lord. We're praying. Those of you who are parents, you always pray with your eyes open, so this is not a big deal for you. Uh, you just can't take the chance of closing your eyes when you pray uh, because of what might happen, where kids might go. Uh, so during that time, if you want to bow your heads, close your eyes, if that helps you focus during that time, you can do that. If you want to keep your eyes up here or look at what's going to be on the screen, you can do that. I just wanted to prepare you for that. So I'm going to pray over us as a church, praying examples of what it looks like to to declare the gospel through our prayers, and then we're going to stand and sing one chorus from a well-known hymn that you're going to be aware of, and we'll dismiss at that point as soon as we've seen that chorus. But at that point, when we, we dismiss, that doesn't mean God's finished working your life. That doesn't mean now's not the time to respond. There will be pastors. There will be people up here at the front to pray for you. If you're here this morning and this is the day that you trust in Jesus Christ, you see his power, you acknowledge his power, you repent of sins and trust in him, we at that time want to pray for you. Come forward and, and we want to pray for you. If you are sick, if you are hurting, if you need someone to pray for you, that's the time to be able to do that. So know that when we've seen that final chorus and some people are walking out the back to go to the man events table, that doesn't mean that we're finished worshiping together, praying together. You may just stay right where you are and pray. I uh, just want you to be aware of that um, for kind of where we're going at the end. So imagine, imagine living in a 10,000 square foot mansion guarded by a private gate, driving two Mercedes-Benz vehicles, probably not at the same time, but I guess owning two Mercedes-Benz vehicles, vacationing in exotic destinations, shopping at some of the most expensive stores in the world, on top of that, you buy a $2 million Ocean View home in California where you keep your other Mercedes Benz just for that home. This was the story of a man named Costi Hinn. 
Costi Hinn is the nephew of somebody that you may be aware of, Benny Hinn. Uh, Costi Hinn got his start in ministry serving as a catcher for his uncle, Benny. Uh, so when they would have huge healing crusades, and there would be a proclamation, and the person would fall backward, Costi's job was to be the person there catching uh, that person that fell back. Costi says that his time in ministry was a whirlwind tour of luxury. $25,000 a night royal suites in Dubai, seaside resorts in Greece, tours of the Swiss Alps, villas on Lake Como in Italy. The pay was great. We flew in a, our own private Gulfstream, and I bought custom suits for my job as a catcher. All I had to do was catch people and look spiritual. But here's the other part of Costi's story. During high school, one of his friends in high school became sick with cancer. And he asked his family to go to that person's house and to pray for their healing. And he was told that they only healed in crusades where money exchanged hands. That they could pray for his friend, but they were not going to go there to try to heal his friends. And then he said it began to crumble for him more when he realized that those who were not healed in the crusades were blamed because of their lack of faith and not because of any other factors involved. And what began to materialize as Costi began to date a Christian girl who had not grown up in that same background, he began to read scripture over and over and over again and began to realize that the type of healing that the Lord wanted to provide more than anything was the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of a person's life. Did God have the power to heal? Absolutely he did. Was it meant to be put on display in a crusade setting in order for your family to gain more money? No, he began to feel very uncomfortable about that to the point that he broke away from his family's ministry. He has a new book coming out fairly soon telling the story of him breaking away from his family's ministry. He talks about being ostracized in many ways from his family because of what he, became to what he came to believe and how he began to proclaim those things. This tension between healing and the gospel, how do we work those things out? Let's do another one. Imagine this. Imagine you're a missionary in Asia, and people began to listen to the gospel message, and as they listen to the gospel, they begin to get rid of the idols in their homes. Then, the village leader dies, and the villagers blame his death on you as the missionary because you told these people to get rid of their idols. And so you feel bad about what's happened, and you go to this village, and you begin to pray for the people. And as you pray, the man who is lying dead coughs. And then he begins to breathe. And then people reach down and pick him up. And he's alive. That's a good time to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people who are there. As you begin to share about the one who has defeated the power of sin and who has overcome the power of death, and who wants not only to change our bodies, but ultimately to restore us to a right relationship with Jesus Christ, with God through Jesus Christ. Now, lest you think that story is made up, 
That story comes from a group of Southern Baptist missionaries, IMB missionaries, um, and it was relayed to David Platt when he was president of the IMB, and David began to tell that story to others. If that story seems strange, uh, there's a man named Craig Keener. Craig Keener is a well-known Christian evangelical scholar, written numerous commentaries, numerous books. Uh, Craig Keener is married to a woman from Africa. Craig's a a white gentleman uh, and, and married to a woman, a native woman from Africa. And he said when he met his wife, he found out that his sister-in-law, as a young girl, had died, and then after being prayed for, had, had come back to life. And Craig writes about the relationship between the power of the gospel and these healings that take place. But let's also admit that not everyone who gets sick physically and who's a follower of Jesus is automatically going to be healed. What do you do with this relationship between forgiveness of sins and the healing of the body? We realize that something feels wrong about a crusade where someone makes money and proclaims healing and we're not sure what's going on. But we also acknowledge that we serve a God of great power and great glory who is able to do things that go beyond anything we could ever imagine. The question is, how do we understand those things together in a way that matches Scripture? Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now this is going to be the third healing account that we found in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 5-7, through Jesus teaches with authority about the things of God. He heals a leper. He heals the servant of a Roman centurion. And now, he's going to heal Peter's mother-in-law. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. Why does Matthew include this particular healing account? Possibly because it's the first healing of a woman, and so it's a sign in the gospel that God's healing is not just for for these male figures that have been mentioned, but it extends for women as well. It's possible that it has something to do with the healing happened in a home. This is the first healing that's happened in a domestic setting. Might have something to do with that. More than likely, though, the reason Matthew includes this is because of Peter's role among the disciples And so Jesus is bringing this healing very close to home for the disciples. Uh, I guess pun intended there, but but he's bringing this healing there to the disciples. And Peter, because of his role among the disciples, sees this healing take place. Then look what happens in verse 16. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So there's a distinction here between the casting out of evil spirits and the healing of the sick, but at the same time, it teaches us to see a relationship between physical healing and and spiritual healing. Even today, even among people who are not necessarily Christians or not particularly religious, a lot of people will acknowledge the relationship between spiritual healing and physical healing. They'll, They'll mention it in very general terms, for sure, 
but that there's even today among a lot of medical personnel this, this connection that's made. But here's the kicker. Here's what we're trying to get to. Verse 17. This is Matthew's strategy. He'll tell you a story, and then he's going to tie it to a scripture, okay? Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. If you've been tracking with us through the book of Matthew and you've been underlining the fulfill words, here's another good word to underline. Another fulfill statement that happens in Matthew. So Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Then he comes and he provides these healing accounts, where, uh, where these healing experiences. So he heals these people to demonstrate the authority that he has. And so people are drawn to him and he's casting out demons. He's healing people. And then Matthew lets us in on the secret. He says this happened in order to fulfill this prophecy from Isaiah. A good practice always in Bible reading, but especially in Matthew's gospel, is when you see one of these fulfillment scriptures mentioned, we want to go back and look at that scripture in the Old Testament because usually there's more going on. It's not just Matthew's randomly picked out a particular passage and said, hey, let's use that here. There's something else going on. So in your Bible, if you would, turn back to Isaiah chapter 53. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, those, these verses will be up on the screen. But if you have a phone with the Bible or you have a hard copy, turn back to Isaiah chapter 53 because this is a key section. A key section in, in this story. And it helps us to understand this relationship between what does it mean to be forgiven of sins and why are not all sick people healed today. How, how do we understand that, that relationship? Isaiah chapter 53 is one of four different times in the book of Isaiah that you have something that is called a servant song. So there's a, there are these groupings of poetry that you find in, in Isaiah that talk about the coming servant of the Lord. And there's a lot of discussion in Jewish literature about who this servant would be who the servant referred to, when Jesus comes on the scene, his followers begin to make the connection, oh yeah, Isaiah's servant? <laughs> I think this may be Isaiah's servant that was prophesied. And so you find the connection that's made. So Isaiah chapter 53 is part of one of these servant songs. Look in verse 2 of Isaiah 53. Speaking of this servant of the Lord, it says, He grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Don't move too quickly past that verse. Um, we live, hear me out in this, we live in such an image-obsessed, beauty-dominated type of a culture where we're so worried about, about appearances, and it says here that the coming servant of the Lord, he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him. It's like he might be born in a stable in Bethlehem. And he had no beauty that we should desire him. There would be nothing external that would say, oh yeah, look at this one. He's going to be the servant of the Lord. 
hands down, this is, this is gut-wrenching confession time, but hands down, and there's some bad ones, but the worst Bible study I ever gave in my life, and that's a long list, but the worst Bible study I ever gave in my life is when I was late in my high school years, you're going through that teenage time, you're obsessed with outward experience, uh, an outward appearance, I should say, and so I gave a Bible study based on Jesus' ministry that because, this is just gut-wrenching to share with you, because he walked a lot and because he was out in the sun, that he was probably this really fit, good-looking guy that people were drawn to because of the type of itinerant walking ministry that he had. And someone came up to me after that Bible study and very gently, very appropriately said, son, uh, I think I get what you were going for there, but let me show you a verse in the book of Isaiah that might make you rethink what you just said. And I looked at that verse, and I just remember being crushed because my idea of religion was what looked good to the eyes, this idea of being obsessed with external appearance. I wanted Jesus to look the way I wanted to look. And here you have this prophecy of the one who would come, come suffering. Nothing about him externally that would draw people. Then look what happens in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Can I tell you that if your life is characterized by suffering and grief, Scripture says that Jesus, his life as well, was characterized by those things. He knows what grief is about. He knows what suffering is about. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He's taken on that pain. He's taken on that suffering. And watch what happens in verse 5. He was pierced for what? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, or a lot of you would have memorized that, by his wounds, we are healed. So when Matthew, in chapter 8, is giving these accounts of healing, and then he refers back to the fulfillment of this Isaiah prophecy. He is saying, yes, Jesus is able to heal physically, but more than that, he is the one who took on our sins. He not only took our diseases and our illnesses and our griefs and our suffering, he took our sins. And so we are not just changed physically, healed physically, we are able to be healed spiritually in a way that completely transforms not only our life now, but our life for all of eternity. So go back to Matthew chapter 9, and you're going to see where Matthew begins to include this into his gospel. So he's laying the foundation for the people saying, this one Jesus, he has the authority to heal. That's what chapter 8 is about, but watch where it leads in chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. You'll see really quickly why Matthew puts this story in here. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic 
lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, not necessarily the faith of the man who was there, though that may be included in the statement, but the people who brought him, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Man, this is such a key section for understanding this connection between forgiveness and healing. You might say, that's really calloused, almost rude of Jesus to do that. Here's this man who can't walk, who's paralyzed, who's come to be healed so he's able to walk, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. But what's he doing there? He sees a need for this man that goes greater than his need to walk. Is his paralysis a bad thing? Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, he's, he's suffering. Does he want to walk? Yes, he wants to walk. Does he have a greater need than physical healing? Yes, he does. He needs the forgiveness of his sins. Do we desire physical healing in our lives? Absolutely we do. Is that our ultimate need? No. There's a deeper need, a need to be made right with God through Jesus, a need to have our sins forgiven and our lives restored. Does that make God where he doesn't care about our physical healing? That's not what we're saying at all. He cares immensely about that, but he is taking on our grief, taking on our suffering in such a way that his healing doesn't stop there. It goes to a degree that is beyond anything that we can see with our physical eyes because there's the connection. Look at what happens in verse 3. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. He's speaking irreverently about God. He's acting as God even though he's obviously not God, or so they thought. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? So somebody comes in here this morning, and they're paralyzed and lying on a mat. Which would be easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Well, it would actually be easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because you wouldn't be able to see whether that had happened or not. <laughs> I could say, your sins are forgiven, and that gets to an internal reality. But what does Jesus do? Verse 6, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So I'm going to do something so that you will have authority to know that I can do what I just said I was going to do. He looked to the paralytic and said, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. What is the purpose of the healing in this situation? It's to show visible proof that Jesus also had the authority to forgive sins. When these healings happened, it was physical healing that pointed to Jesus' power to provide spiritual healing. When we see that healing happen, it's not just about the healing, it's about what God ultimately wants to do in that person's life. Now, authority to heal Authority to forgive sins, and then watch how Matthew, where he takes it one more step. Look in verse 18. So if you're kind of tracking with what Matthew's doing here, authority to heal, authority to forgive sins, and then that's going to lead one more place. Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, 
and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now there's another story in the middle of those verses, but, but skip down to verse 23. Verse 23, when Jesus made it to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Again, it sounds callous, but we know that Jesus is doing something else here, and it says that the people laughed at him. Verse 25, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose and the report of this went through all the district. So he is not only able to say your sins are forgiven, but he is also able to say death is defeated. Where will Jesus' ministry lead? On the cross, he will take the power of sin. Through the resurrection, he will defeat the power of death. What can we never overcome on our own? What can we never deal with by ourselves? Sin and death. In these healing accounts about Jesus' authority, Matthew is showing us this one, this servant of God who has come, he has the power to heal, he has authority over every sickness and over every spiritual being, but he also has the authority to forgive sins, and he has the authority to destroy death. And then as the gospel goes, Matthew will show us, and this is how that's going to happen. Okay, now let's back up and think again, big picture, about what this means about forgiveness and healing. If you get the weekly emails uh, that, that I send out from time, I say weekly, they, they come kind of sporadically, depending on how my week goes, but uh, I'll send an email out this week that has a document that we put together that's called a biblical theology of, of sickness and healing. If you want to look more at this, if you want to think more big picture about this topic, we want to get that document to you that, that you would be able to use. Um, if you're not on an email list, just write your name on one of those cards and, and give it to us at the end. But we want to think big picture. Here's the way we normally think big picture at Emmaus. We think in terms of this three circles model. I, I put this before you several times. I want you to see it again if you've not been a part of Emmaus or, or maybe you haven't seen it in a while. This is a model not only for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but for us to understand how God works in the world and what, what's happening in Scripture. So you start in the top left with God's design for the world. Sin leads us away from God's good design for the world, and sin always leads to brokenness. Now, brokenness could be misunderstood there, but it's the idea of sin leads to death. Sin leads us away from what God desires for the world and desires for our lives. And when we get in brokenness, all those squiggly lines that go out to the side, those are our human attempts to deal with brokenness on our own, to try to fix our problem on our own. What's the only hope, though, to get back to God? It's when we repent and believe in the gospel. If the word gospel sounds strange to your ears, remember gospel means good news. The good news, not of what you've done or what I've done, but the good news of what Jesus has done. And then when you experience the gospel, it leads you to recover and pursue God's design for your life and God's design for the world. Okay, now here's the question. What does that have to do with understanding forgiveness and healing based on what we saw in Matthew? Look at the next slide. So I want you to see the big graphic so you'd be reminded of it. 
God's design for the world and for his people is that we would live fully and we would live healthy, physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, that we would live healthy lives. That's how God created people to live in his world, to live fully in his world, to flourish in the world as the people he's created. What do we find in the story of scripture? Sin leads to brokenness. Sin leads to death. Because of the reality of sin in the world, people experience sickness. People experience suffering. We go away from God's design, it leads to brokenness. So what do we try to do? We try to handle that sickness and that suffering based on our own power and our own knowledge. But is that our greatest need? Is physical healing our greatest need? No, it's not just physical healing. We need to be changed from the inside out. And so what are we called to do? We're called to repent and believe in the power of Jesus who defeated sin and defeated death. And so when we believe, that is good news. And when we experience that good news, it leads us to live in the way that God has called us to live. But here's the kicker. Just because we have been saved, to use kind of a churchy word, because our sins have been forgiven and we've been restored to God, does that automatically mean that all your sickness goes away? No, it doesn't. Does that automatically mean that all your suffering goes away? Not a chance that we still live in a world characterized by sickness and suffering. How do we make sense of that? One of the ways we do that is with a phrase that helps us understand the story of Scripture, and it's this already, not yet reality. Already, God has transformed our lives. We have been forgiven. We have been made new. Not yet have we seen everything that that is going to amount to. And so in this life, we realize that medicine and health, the desire that some, even even miracles, the desire that someone would be made right in, in their body, that that is a great gift. Nothing I say this morning should take away from the fact that we want to see people healed. We want to see people involved in medical care. We want to see people doing those things, pursuing healthy lives. All of that is good. It's a great gift but it's a terrible God. If we are putting our eternal hopes, our hopes for a good, full, flourishing life in the hands of medicine and health, that's ultimately temporary. It will never fulfill. It's a great gift, and it's a terrible God. Because here's the reality, and I do not mean to sound calloused at this point. Here's the reality. Every person healed physically in this life will then die. (laughs) The people that Jesus healed in Scripture, do you know what happened to them? They also died physically. Uh, You think about this little girl that's mentioned here who comes back to life. You think about the story of Lazarus who was raised from the dead. That's a picture of the resurrection, but Lazarus too would have died physically at some point. Do you think Lazarus was scared of dying the second time? (laughs) Probably not. He's like, well, the first time... Came back to life. This is probably going to be okay. I can trust the one who brought me back to life. And so when physical healing happens, it points us to a God who is able to heal spiritually. And here's the thing. When we experience spiritual healing, it makes us anticipate and desire physical healing that ultimately 
will come in eternity when sin and sickness and death are destroyed. So we want you, we want you to desire spiritual healing and then that spiritual healing leads us to desire what God wants to do in our lives eternally. In the meantime, we rejoice with those who are healed. We desire for people to be healed. We want to see that happen. And then we mourn with those when it doesn't happen. But we don't mourn as those who have no hope because we have ultimate hope through Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? He defeated sin and he defeated death. Now here's the question. When that reality begins to take place in our lives, how do we know that that's happening? How do we know that God is teaching us those things and, and, and the gospel is taking root in our lives? Here's what I want to put before you, church. The way that we know that we are beginning to grasp this truth about the Lord, it will show up in the way that we pray. It will show up in the way that we pray. I am not subtweeting anybody's class prayer list at this point, okay? I'm not, I'm not picking anybody out. I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, okay? So this is not a shot at anybody. But when you look across the board, and, and once again, I want to make very clear, I'm as guilty as anybody here. When you look across the board at most church prayer lists, not just Emmaus, but anywhere, very rarely do our prayer list and the prayers that we pray reflect what we claim to believe about, about the true hope of the gospel. What we want to do is when these truths about forgiveness and healing and God's eternal hope for our lives, when these things take root in our lives, it will change the way your Sunday school class prays. It will change the way a church prays. It will change the way we pray personally. It will change the way we pray about what's happening in our lives. And so my hope for us is that we will see the truth of God's word, we will desire physical healing, but more than anything, we will desire spiritual healing that causes us to look to the future and the hope that we have in Christ, and it will transform the way that this particular church prays. That people would look at our prayer list and say, that doesn't look like anything I've ever seen before. Sometimes... Sometimes we're just falling back on old language that we've learned or ways that we've learned to put these together. Sometimes we're just speaking naturally. So I'm not, again, I'm not attacking anybody. I, I'm, I'm more looking at my own heart and saying, Owen, if God answered your prayers, what kind of eternal impact would come from that? If God took the entire prayer list at Emmaus and answered all those prayers, would the result be short-term comfort or would it be eternal transformation? What do we see happening? So here's how we're going to end our service today. David's going to come up and he's going to play a hymn in the background. And us together, I, I'm going to pray over us. This will be several minutes. But I'm going to pray through different circumstances related to sickness and suffering in the world while David is playing. You can bow your heads and close your eyes if you want to do that. You can stay engaged with me visually. You can look at what's going to be up on the screen about these prayer prompts. But hear me out. Hear me out. What we are trying to think about is, God, 
What do our prayers sound like? What are our prayers focused on? If we understand the truth of the gospel, the truth of what you give us in Matthew 8 and 9. And after I pray through these things, we're going to sing the chorus that's tied into this particular hymn. And then we're going to be dismissed as soon as that song is finished. But if you need someone to pray for you, if you've been desiring physical healing, but you've given very little thought to spiritual healing, there's going to be people down here to pray with you at the front after the service. You may need to stay right where you are. You may need to cross the auditorium and go pray with someone else who is dealing with a physical suffering and just pray the gospel over that person. Whatever that looks like, we're going to end our service in this time of prayer. So I want to begin in this way. I want us to think about what does it look like to pray for someone who is sick and suffering, but who does not know the power of God's forgiveness and salvation. Father, we pray for those. We pray for those in our life and those in the world who are sick and suffering. God, there's so many things that come into our life that cause pain. God, we know that sickness and suffering causes such immense fear in our lives, not knowing what's going to happen as a result of, of what we're facing. God, I pray for those who are sick and suffering, who have never experienced your forgiveness and your salvation. God, I pray that they would know that you are good and that you are near them. God, I pray that they would reach out to you and hope, and God, that they would realize that their deepest need is spiritual transformation. God, that you care about them. You care about their body. You care about what they're facing. But God, more than anything, you care about their soul. God, you care about their life being changed from the inside out. God, come to that person in their fear. Come to that person in their sickness. And let them know the hope of the gospel, that it's not about them getting their life together. It's about them trusting Jesus. God, I pray that even this morning, that there would be people in this room, they know friends and family who are sick and suffering, but have never trusted in Jesus. God, give us the courage to pray, to pray for those people. And now, God, we pray for those who are sick and suffering and they're Christians but they have run far from you. God, it's been a long time since they've been in church. It's been a long time since they thought about their spiritual health. But they're in a situation right now, God, where they are sick and they are suffering. And God, we pray that you would use this sickness. You would use the situation. God, we hate that it's happening in their lives. But we pray that you would use this to get their attention. God, that it would lead to repentance and it would lead to faith. God, that they would be drawn back to you because of the situation that's happening in their life and in their family. They've run away from you, but you are with them. God, you are drawing them back. And sometimes it takes sickness and suffering. Sometimes it takes these situations to get our attention spiritually. And so God, we pray for our friends. We pray for our family members who know you but they are far from you. 
God, that you would draw them back through what's happening in their lives. God, we pray for those who are sick and tired. God, they are overwhelmed by what's happening in their lives. God, when we get sick, when we face suffering, it's not just a theological issue. It's not just something that we have to work out the logic. God, it's emotional. God, when people suffer, we know that they feel so tired. They feel so exhausted. They feel so beat down. God, I pray that they would be able to cry out to you, that they would have the courage to pray through what they're facing. God, you are able to hear our pain when we cry out to you. Sometimes we don't use the right words. Sometimes we're just screaming out. Sometimes we don't know what to say. But God, you meet us. You meet us in those times. God, we pray for those who are sick and suffering and they feel like they're about to give up. God, we pray that they would keep going, that they would not give up, that they would endure. God, we know that scripture calls us to count it all joy when we face trials of many kind because the testing of our faith produces endurance. God, I pray for those here this morning in this room who are sick and suffering and they just feel like giving up, God, that they would not give up, that they would continue to trust in you. God, I pray for those who are sick and struggling with temptation. When we get sick, when we suffer, we're so prone to sin and temptation in those times. God, I pray that those who are sick and suffering, that they would not be tempted to move further from you, God, but they would draw near to you in holiness. God, sometimes you use sickness and suffering in our lives to refine us. God, our ultimate need in life is not to be happy, it's to be holy. And so, God, we want to be comfortable. We admit that we want to be comfortable. But, God, sometimes you have to make us uncomfortable because of the work you want to do in our lives. And, God, so people here this morning who are hurting, maybe their marriage is hurting, maybe their family is hurting, it just, ah, they don't know where to turn, and they're tempted to turn away from you. God, then make them hate sin. Make them hate sin because of the brokenness and destruction it brings in the world, and God, draw them back to you in holiness. When we are sick, may we live for holiness more than ever. God, we pray for those who are sick and suffering who have lost their contentment. They've lost their eternal perspective. God, in our sickness and our suffering, remind us that what we face now is not the end of the story. God, that what we are facing feels so hard, but your word says that in some way it is light and momentary, and it is building for us an eternal weight of glory that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine. And God, we admit that our sickness and our suffering doesn't feel light and momentary. It feels heavy. But God, give us a contentment. Give us a peace that passes all understanding. And God, give us an eternal perspective that reminds us that this is not the end of the story. 
God, I pray for people here this morning who are dealing with emotional and psychological challenges. It's one thing to be sick on the outside, but God, it brings so much shame and so much hurt and so much confusion. When our emotions and our mind feel sick, where we don't know where to turn, we just feel overwhelmed by that. Sometimes we feel embarrassed. God, would you remind us that you see what's happening on the inside and you love us. God, I pray for people this morning who are dealing with depression, that they would know your love, they would know your presence, they would know the salvation that comes through Jesus, and they would be able to trust you in the middle of that. God, I pray for those who are sick and suffering, and they've withdrawn from relationships, They've given up on church or they're tempted to say, you know what, I I don't need this anymore. God, suffering and sickness makes us feel isolated and more than any time, we need the church during that time. God, I pray for those this morning who might be tempted to check out, say, I don't need this, this isn't worth it. I'm gonna suffer by myself. God, we never suffer by ourselves as followers of Jesus. Draw people into the church. Draw people back into relationships because of the sickness and suffering that they are facing. And God, we pray. We pray for healing, not just so we'll be comfortable. God, we pray that you would heal people so they would have extended time of ministry. God, I pray for those who are sick and suffering that they would not waste that sickness, God, but they would use it as an opportunity to share the gospel with people around them. God, in the middle of our suffering, we're in a place to be able to share the hope that we have in Christ. And so let us not waste that. And God, we pray for your healing. And when that healing comes, we rejoice. And when that healing doesn't come, we mourn with those who mourn. But we have hope through Christ because he has defeated sin and death. God, change the way we pray change what we live for. God, let us not be dominated by the things of this world, but live for you. God, that the gospel would transform everything about our lives and that we would trust you because it is good and powerful and sweet to trust in the name of Jesus. And so we want to do that as a church right now. Church, stand with us. We're gonna sing this chorus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. After we've seen You're dismissed, but you're dismissed to go and to pray and to live for the one who has defeated sin and death. Let's sing together.